Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Full of Energy, an Association of Energy Engineers podcast where we talk about workforce development, energy hot topics, and energy policy. I'm your host, Laurie Beth Nix. The Association of Energy Engineers, otherwise known as AEE, is a professional organization of over 17,000 members and 32,000 actively certified individuals in over 100 countries. AEE serves your needs for career development, networking, and recognition. Today, we are going to talk about measurement and verification, and we have two incredible people joining us, um, and I'd like them to introduce themselves. So uh, today we have Anuj Pandey and John Avina. So Anuj, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself? Hello, Laurie. Hello, John. Hi. Hello, everyone. My name is Anuj, uh, Anuj Pandey. I belong to India, and presently I'm working with uh, an ESCO, which is uh, based in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia. Um, I've been working in energy services field for past eight years, and my present role is in MNV is to handle the performance period uh, measurement and verification reporting. So that's where I come into play in MNV. Oh, my name's John Avina. I'm uh, the president of Abraxas Energy uh, Consulting. We've been around for, I think, 22 years, um, and we started as an MNV company, actually, but we also do energy audits and retro commissioning. Um, my thing in MNV is, um, I've, I've been involved with uh, an option C uh, M&V software. It was called Metrics, and I think it came out in 1997 or 96, 97 probably. Um, and I've pretty much been involved with it all along. I've been teaching classes in option C M&V and doing tech support, writing the software. Um, and yeah, that's pretty much it. We also do, um, I've been involved in a lot of uh, option A and B and D M&V for ESCOs as well. And I primarily operate in the ESCO sphere. Thank you both for introducing yourself. We're excited to talk about NNV because obviously it helps with energy efficiency. So let's start with our listeners to talk about what is MNV and why is it important to energy efficiency? Yeah, I'll start off. I'll just give the basic definition of what MNV is as far as I could understood, understand it. So MNV basically stands for measurement and verification, and it is basically the process of how you assess and validate your uh, savings in uh, energy efficiency projects or programs. Now, uh, it plays a very uh, crucial role in verifying how much uh, you're saving and what's your baseline. So it involves all the crucial steps where uh, you found, find out the outcomes of uh, any energy efficiency projects. Uh, just a brief introduction, Mr. John, please add on to that. Oh, yeah. So um, the reason why M&V is so important is because, you know, in any business, there are plenty of people who, I guess you could call them snake oil salesmen, who will promise the moon or promise all kinds of energy savings, and there really aren't going to be much there. And so what M&V is good for is to actually ensure that the energy savings happens. And so a lot of projects, especially uh, ESCO projects, um, involve M&V, and that way the customer or the client is, is feels secure that they're actually getting the savings that they were promised. Just to add on to some of the things that Mr. John talked about, so basically the major uh, purpose that MNV serves in energy efficiency are uh, some of these like performance evaluation, uh, your transparency and accountability of the project improves uh, when you introduce certain MNV protocols or when you follow a standard guidelines uh, for measurement and verification of energy services projects. It also helps us in uh, risk mitigation. So it tells uh, it tells you how much uh, 
uncertainty you have in project how much uh, you know errors are there uh, in your measurement so it helps with all of that in an energy efficiency project so what are some of those top mmv protocols and how are they used anuj you want to take that um, see, I am familiar with only one protocol, uh, which is International Performance Measurement and Verification Protocol, IPMVP, because that's what we have been using uh, since I started, uh, without even knowing actually. Uh, so, but but yes, uh, we widely follow IPMVP in uh, Saudi Arabia. Uh, options which follows, uh, which offers us four options: option A, B, and C and D. Uh, I think Mr. John can uh, add on to these some of these other protocols. Yeah, sure. Uh, so ASHRAE put ASHRAE 14 uh, put something out, uh, and it's it's a little more scientific. Uh, in other words, it's uh, it's more about getting the right answer, and whereas the IPMVP is more about contractual understanding, and it's it's a little different. Let's just say it's a little more scientific. But the uh, there's the ASHRAE 14, so they have one. Um, there's also um, FEMP guidelines, FEMP MNV guidelines, which is my favorite one. And that is primarily for ESCO projects for the federal government. Um, and then there is also the BPAs put out a lot of really good, um, uh, let's say, manuals for MNV. It's the Bonneville Power Association, um, and they are really, really good. Those are the ones that I know of, but I know there's more. Thank you. And you know, you you mentioned a lot more protocols, and I'm sure um, those all didn't come out at the same time. So. I would like to know how has MMV evolved over the years and who primarily uses that? Let me start off on this question because uh, evolution of MNV, I'm not sure about because I think Mr. John has been in this field for long, long enough uh, so that he knows. But uh, uh, from my perspective, MNV is primarily used by energy services company who are uh, eventually contracted by either government entities or by their clients to you know implement the energy services uh, projects in their premises or in their institutions. So yeah, for me it's primarily ESCOs, but I know utilities also use uh, use uh, MNV protocols. I'm not too familiar with those. Okay, so yeah. I'll give, I'll give a quick um, history, I guess, of MNV, at least as I see it. Um, though it it started with performance contracting, at least from my perspective. So performance contracting, I'm pretty sure evolved in the 80s. Um, in the late 80s is when it first started showing up. And I think it was as shared savings projects. So uh, an, an ESCO would you know, go to a client and say, look, we will, um, we'll, we'll install this lighting retrofit for you. And how about this? Um, we'll, we'll pay for it. Uh, we, the, the contractor, will pay for it. But we want to share the savings. We want a, you know, maybe 50 or maybe 80% of the savings or something like that over the next whatever years. And that's how they this that's how this whole thing started. Um, the problem with that method, though, is that an ESCO who did that, you know, they they're putting, let's say they did a million dollar project on lighting for one client. Well, they've just invested a million dollars. And now they got another client that's two million, and another one, three million. It's not scalable. And so that that didn't really work very well, at least for you know becoming really super successful in energy efficiency. So they someone or I don't know how, but eventually people figured out that well maybe we should get the banks involved and let's just do a loan, and then the ESCO doesn't have to put all this money out 
um, and actually can do a, a ton of jobs. So, so with, with this new system, there's three entities. There's the ESCO, there's the client, and the bank. The ESCO sets up a loan so that the client can borrow the money to pay the ESCO. So the ESCO does the work, gets paid immediately. Um, and now the client is on the hook every quarter or every year to pay the bank um, a certain amount. And the ESCO has, has made this project, they've fashioned this project so that they will save more money than the client owes. So that way the client is always in the, in, in the positive, in the black. They're always um, winning and, and never losing money on this deal. And so that was, that's the whole basis of performance contracting. And M&D is the part where, um, where they actually measure how much was saved. Uh, because if, if the ESCO doesn't save enough money for the client, then the client can't make the loan payment. So the ESCOs guarantee that they're gonna save enough money. And if they don't, they'll write a check for the difference. So that way, you know, this measurement and verification is really important because it determines, did the ESCO meet the goal? And number two, how much does the ESCO owe the client if they do? Okay, so we're back to the history here. So once they they started, you know, putting this together, this whole bank and clients and ESCO thing, the banks needed a way of knowing that that these savings were real. And that's when the uh, NEMVP came, and that's the precursor to the IPMVP. And the NEMVP um, is a government project and a bunch of industry people, and they, they put together these the basic you know, option A, B, C, and D that Anoush talked about. And, and they described these are the different ways that you can do, that you can measure savings. It was a, it was a brilliant document, um, and it, it just provided a general guideline for all of us so that people couldn't really pull fast ones as much on their clients. That, that is how uh, M&V started, or that's how it started. Um, and then initially the ESCOs um, were just using option C, which means they were using utility bills. That's how, that's how they did it. It was simple. It was, you know, it's intuitive. It's what the clients wanted. They wanted to see a reduction in their utility bills. The problem with utility bills is, well, there's a couple of problems, but one of them is that the weather changes from year to year. And when you have a super hot summer, you're going to end up with a lot of extra air conditioning. And that means a lot of extra usage. And then all of a sudden you can't tell, did I save energy or did I not? Because we're air conditioning more. So they would do something called weather normalization, which would remove the effect of weather from, um, from the utility bills. That's what my software does, by the way. So that's what the ESCOs were primarily doing in the early 90s, mid 90s, and late 90s. That's what they were doing. But there's a problem with utility bills, and that is that buildings change their energy usage patterns over time, and they just start adding more equipment, or maybe they, they screw up all the controls uh, um, settings that the ESCO put in there, and all of a sudden the usage starts to creep up and up and up. And that's a huge problem if you're trying to show savings with utility bills. So as a result, they end up having to do what in the old days they used to call them baseline modifications. Now they're calling them non-routine adjustments. And they would, um, and so the ESCO would have to identify, well, what happened? Why the usage go up? Oh, they put in a new computer lab. Then the ESCO would have to figure out, well, how much energy is that? Are they using extra? They do some calculation. And of course it's wrong. It's never gonna be right, but it's as right as they can make it. And the client has to agree. Well, this is a really expensive process 
um, monitoring changes in the facilities. It's expensive and it's risky. And then you can also get in trouble with the client because they might think that you're trying to rip them off. So you end up with these disagreements. So it's just option C, a lot of ESCO started getting away from option C for those reasons. One was risk, one was expense, and then the other one was it's not really good with the clients. So they started moving to option A and B. And option A is where you measure one or two variables and you don't measure other ones. You just assume there are certain things. An example might be with lighting, you measure the fixture wattage before and after, but you just assume the number of hours. And, and so that would be an option A. And option B is where you measure everything. So you would measure the fixture wattage before and after, and you'd measure the hours. So that's, they started moving to that. And then, and, and they, they would also start, let's say, stipulating things. Now stipulating said would be something like, look, we put in new refrigerators. We're not gonna measure them. We just, we're just gonna take the data from the, from the website or from the specs. And we're just gonna assume this is how much they saved. It's not a lot of energy. Let's just agree this is what they saved. And that's that, we're not gonna measure anything. That's called stipulated. So you're seeing these um, M&V plans with more, more of a movement towards option A and stipulated savings. And slowly the whole, let's say value of M&V started to go down the tubes because it wasn't, they weren't really measuring the savings as much anymore as they used to. And so then for some projects, actually a lot of projects, you end up with exactly the same savings numbers every year. And so the clients are just thinking, well, what's the point? This isn't really worth it. Also, ESCOs, some ESCOs or some salespeople in ESCOs would prefer not to do MV at all in the first place because then there's no risk at all. Also, they would, um, so what they might say to the client is, look, the MV is going to cost you $100,000 over 10 years or whatever. Or we can just put lights in these extra three buildings. How about that? Wouldn't you like that? And, and the clients will often say, yeah, I'll take the lights. I don't need that. And so, so they would kind of gut the MV, or maybe they wouldn't you know, say no MV, but they would reduce the scope of MV and then put in more projects instead. So you mentioned ESCOs and utilities in there. And I was curious. What's the difference between utilities and ESCOs using MMV protocols? Um, how do ESCOs and utilities use the same protocols for different objectives? Yes. Uh, see, Mr. John, my my perspective is very limited to how ESCOs perceive MNV. And I am I would be very biased in that. So I actually also I'm not aware how uh, utilities are using MNV. Uh, you know, uh, in terms of either B option A, B or C. So I don't know, instead of giving any wrong answers, I would just pass on this question. All right, well, I can start with um, with a few things. One thing is utilities are, at least in the United States, um, there are a, a lot of energy efficiency is done through utilities. I believe at least at one point I heard in California, and maybe this is wrong, but that, that the state was spending $2 billion a year on energy efficiency, and that's through the utilities. So the utilities will hire, they'll, they'll either do it themselves or they'll hire third-party contractors who will, let's say, uh, a contractor might be someone who just does hotels and they might have just five different um, energy projects. It's like we do lighting, we do hotel reservation systems that turn on the air conditioning and turn it off. We do, you know, something with HVAC and I, I can't think of other ones, but, you know, they they have just a handful of, of measures. It's very simple. 
And that way they don't spend a lot of time on engineering. And that's what they do, just hotels. Um, that would be a, a utility program. And uh, utility, the, the, the problem with utilities, or not the problem, but the, the difference between utilities and ESCOs is it's public money. And uh, in California, at least, when, so a utility program might, you know, they might claim we, we save this much money, they would have to do their own M&V to show it. And then there's a reviewer who will review their M&V. And then the, the California PUC will review a portion of those as well. So there's a review and then there's a review of the review. And so there's a lot of oversight um, uh, in California in, in the way we you know, do our energy efficiency and in our M&V. And, and in California, or I know, let me just say utility programs in general, it's, I, I am not a utility person, I'm an ESCO person. And so my understanding is also somewhat limited, but my understanding is they have totally different goals um, when they're doing M&B and they're looking at things more from a portfolio level. It's like, look, we did um, 2000, 2000 buildings and on average we saved this much. It's a totally different perspective from ESCOs, which just look at one building at a time. But um, utilities, they look at things like, you know, well, how many of these, you know, 2000 buildings would have done this efficiency anyway? I don't know. ESCOs don't care about that. Or they might ask things like, well, you know, this equipment was near the end of its life. So they replaced it. But how many years did they still have? And, and then they would have replaced it in 10 years anyway. So how does that affect the savings? It's, it's just very different. Um, the ESCO people, or I'm sorry, the utility people um, who do M&V are usually more educated um, than the ESCO people. You'll see more statisticians and PhDs. Um, and and they're, they're, let's just say they're, it's a lot more complicated. The ESCO model is more, M&V is just a, it's a contract. That's it. It's like, look, um, we, here are the rules of the game. And, and that's all the name of the plan is, is these are the rules of the game and the, cl the clients and the ESCO agree to it. That's it. And, and usually the client is not that sophisticated. They're not statisticians and they don't really understand math that well often. So the ESCO often has to make it very simple, as simple as possible so the client can understand it. So it, it's very different. Um, so that with the protocols, for example, um, Evo has the IPMVP, and that is one protocol, but it, it covers both ESCOs and it covers the utility people. And there are some really, the utility people have, have actually come up with some really, really brilliant methods that, that are useful for ESCO people that, you know, we've been doing this M&V for 30 years and they've come up with methods that you've never seen before. And some of them are, I really like, um, but, some of them just don't apply to us. So they have, um, so there, there are, it's not clear, let's just say in the protocols, which methods really do not apply to ESCOs and which ones do, and which ones do not apply to utility bills and which ones are only for interval data. It is not clear. And so it's, that is a problem. And so sometimes you'll see, uh, let's say super ESCOs, you know, in other countries, that are trying to follow these protocols, which are heavily influenced by the utility people. And they they are made, and, and they, as a result, 
what they're trying to do is follow these protocols like it's the law or the Bible, and it doesn't really apply, or it shouldn't apply to their ESCO projects, but they don't know, and so they just follow the guideline. And it, it's a problem. So how does one choose what protocol they're going to use in MMV? So uh, as a ESCO personnel, uh, how I would choose any IP, uh, IP MVP option in my project is purely based on what ESMs I am proposing, uh, what type of building is that, what is the existing metering that is already in place, and uh, how much extra meeting that we can put. So, so and also the cost associated with uh, the overall MNV that will happen in a performance period. So, so uh, let's say for example, uh, it's if a building just has a lighting retrofit uh, ESM proposed and the savings are not substantial when compared to the, you know, the baseline bill, which would be the meter, then we opt for option A, which is the retrofit isolation, where we just measure the mean variable for the, for example, for lighting, we measure the wattages while taking a sample measurement. Uh, and then we uh, fix the operating hours uh, by while having a agreement with the entity and with the ESCO. So, and uh, we, and uh, so this reduces our cost. Now option B, uh, option, option B increases our cost in terms of metering. So we usually try to avoid it, but it is very useful when you, when you have to uh, precisely tell uh, the savings from each ESM. Now, uh, when I go to option C, it is very cost effective to us uh, when we look at from an ESCO's perspective. Uh, and uh, it tells us about how your overall building is behaving. I haven't done any option D simula calibrated simulation, so I'm not uh, too familiar with that. So this is how I would put it uh, from my perspective is how I would choose any option or uh, any protocol for, uh, I would take an example, uh, while I was working back in India, we did not, we, we, we do not know in India, we are not very familiar with IP, any MNV protocols. We, we, pitch uh, measurement and verification in our projects. Uh, these projects are basically BOT projects, which are built, operate, and transfer. It is very similar to uh, ESPC projects, performance projects, but there are they are for shorter durations for two and three years. So there, we used to do option C always, but we did not uh, we did not know that it is called option C. But we used to do it in all the projects because it it, it used to reduce our overall cost for the metering. So. Just, in, uh, just to give you an example of that. I think that would be all. Uh, Mr. John, anything to add on that? No, I, I well, okay. So I guess there's two different ways of answering this. One is which protocols do people use? And protocols, I think generally IPMVP is is the one that almost is used almost, not all over the world, but is, is probably the most popular. Um, the BPA stuff might be used in the Pacific Northwest. I just remember there's one in, um, I don't remember what it's called, but there's one for the Northeast um, United States. And I don't remember what it is. Um, FEMP guidelines is used in the federal government um, sector. So they'll use that. Uh, and ASHRAE, I don't know how popular ASHRAE 14 really is and how many people really adhere to it. Uh, and I, I think part of the problem with the ASHRAE 14 is that you have to pay for it. And cause I rem and, and so people don't get it. And and I remember it right after it came out, you know, for the first five or six years, I'd mentioned it. I used to teach a lot of um, Option C software classes. 
no one had ever even heard of it. And and that that's what was so crazy. It's just, they, it's like, how can you not know? But I guess it just wasn't popular because people had to pay for it. That was, that was my guess, I don't know. Um, Okay, so uh, regarding his A, B, C, and D, yeah, Anuj is pretty much right. It's, you know, it, there's not one way to pick um, the right option. Um, and so, again, let me just, for people who don't know M and V, option A means you measure some things, you estimate some things. Option B means you measure every individual input, and then you do calculations based on all those measurements. Option C means you look at the whole building, and usually that's metering. And option D means you use a computer modeling program like eQuest or Trace, and you you measure a lot of things uh, and put that into the modeling program. Um, and D isn't used very often. There's times when people should use it. There's times when when um, you know each different measure or each different option is best for certain let's say cases, but it's it's kind of a nuanced thing. It's it's partially cost. How much does the ESCO want to pay? How much does the client want to pay for the M&V? That's part of it. And they they could probably always get a better, better measurement with option B than they could with option A. The question is, how much do they want to spend to get that better, better measurement? You know, if, if you're only going to save $10,000 a year, do you want to spend $20,000 a year measuring that 10,000 in savings? You don't. So then you might just go with an option A. And, and sometimes you might even just want to stipulate it and say, you know what, it's not a lot of savings. This is a $20 million contract. I don't care about $10,000 here or there. So let's just assume that we saved it. So um, it, it really is a contract by contract basis on which one of these options is used. And, and this is all ESCO talk, by the way. This isn't how the utilities handle things. This is ESCO. Um, I think that that would be how I'd address this. And just to add on to what I said before, like we did not knew uh, the MNV protocols when we were working because they were not widely popular at that time. Uh, we had certain, so each ESCO has certain criteria for measurement and, uh, you know, how to report these savings uh, but it was not widely popular when i was working uh, back in 2015-16 but nowadays uh, uh, most of the escos or any companies uh, they are following ipmvp nowadays so just to add on to that part what i said so what role does calculating uncertainty play in mmv and when is it useful okay um what i can understand what uncertainty is uh, that when you do uncertainty analysis uh, in an ESCO, uh, in a project, uncertainty analysis provides you with an uh, estimate of any potential errors or variation in uh, the MNV process, which might include uh, a variation or errors in your data collection calculation or whatever assumptions that you have taken into account. So, uh, so how uncertainty is helpful uh, is that it provides you with an accurate uh, assessment or estimate of how saving might vary uh, over a period of performance contract. It also helps uh, to evaluate the risk that is associated with it, uh, which in turn helps the stakeholders to you know uh, take the initiative of doing that certain energy efficiency measure because that will provide them with more confidence, a greater confidence for the expected outcomes for the projects. So I would brief it at that. Uh, Mr. John, I think you are very familiar with uncertainty, so. Hey, but Anush, this is my question. Have So yes. you worked in India. Um, yeah. I mean, I don't want to talk about your Saudi work, but your India work, 
Um, yes. Did you ever present uncertainty in your M and V calculations to a client? We we never had to because I we never even proposed any uh, you know protocols to them. We just gave them whatever we thought was right uh, to measure the you know uh, energy savings for any project. Okay. So. So we never we never got into uncertainty or anything. We just had this is our baseline, how we are collecting it, and uh, after post retrofit, what we will be doing, what is the data interval, and this is so basically we just get, tell them why we are doing this and what we will do later on when we replace uh, the equipments or we do our energy uh, conservation measures. Okay, so, that's so the next question. Oh, the next question is: Would your clients? understand uncertainty if you gave them uncertainty numbers would they understand that most of the clients uh would not understand uncertainty they would understand in a layman terms yes what uncertainty is they would know that okay but uh in terms of the complex uh formulas that we used or the statistical formulas that we use uh, for uncertainty and precision absolute relative precision confidence level they they might not understand these things they they might not even care about these things they just want to know you are saving me my bill was this much you will save me this much and how you will save me and what is the, your reporting period for these uh, you know savings that okay. you will provide me with perfect okay so um in the us um I know uh, I'm not going to really bash on the United sorry, States. Sorry to interrupt. Oh, sorry to ahead. interrupt you, but I would just like to add on to that. Uh, this is mostly with your uh, clients, but if you're interacting with a government entity or uh, with a super ESCO, then you need to give them these uncertainty calculations because they, they require it. They need to, they are following certain protocols, so they might have to report it. So then we might provide it to them, but for our personal clients, uh, it's not required. Right. And and as I mentioned before, I'm I'm not sure, but I'm pretty sure that the super escos require it because they're reading the IPMVP as gospel. And and they're not really thinking about what value does this actually give us. But we'll let that go. Maybe I'm wrong there. Um so I I in the ESCO world, I don't think uncertainty is of any value at all. I don't, and I think it is a waste of time and energy. Um, what the client wants to know is how much did I save? And that's it. Did I save what you promised or not? And what kind of check are you going to write me if I didn't? That's what they want to know. Um, now, is any M&V calculation right? No. Um, we don't know how much anyone ever saved. They're always estimates. They're the best estimates we can come up with based on the rules that we wrote in the M&V plan. It's all a game. You write the rules. This is the rules of the game. You follow the rules, and then you have the, the number that results, and this is the savings. Um, what I don't like about uncertainty, there's a few things I don't like. One is that there's a lot of complexity involved in uncertainty, and one of the problems I have is all of that complexity, or almost all of it, has to do with option C. So they they calculate the fractional savings uncertainty, and there's all these formulas to do all of that. It's for option C, but no one calculates calculates it for option A, or almost nobody for option A or B or D. In option A, when you're assuming the number of hours, how do you put uncertainty on that? How do you do that? Um, in option B, when you are you're measuring things, you know, okay, there's instrument measurement error. I guess there's kind of that stuff, and then there's 
let's just say there's there's a lot of interactions between ECMs. There's there are there's just too much in play that uncertainty becomes a really very difficult exercise. And then option D is even worse because there are certainly there are computer bugs. Well, how do you how do you how do you put uncertainty on computer bugs that we don't even know exist, but we know we're there? Um, and 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 then there's all those measurements, and then there's the the you know the, you can't model many things like you can't model um, let's say um, HVAC systems that are not working correctly in eQuest or Trace. You just can't do it. It's impossible. You can only model things that work correctly. And so how do you place uncertainty on that? You can't. And so as a result, it's too difficult to do uncertainty on option A, B, and D. And as a result, it's often not done or usually not done. It's done in option C because that's the only one that it's easy to do in or relatively easy to do in. And so it just seems silly to me. The other thing is with option C, I mentioned before that we often do these baseline modifications or non-routine adjustments. And <clears throat> so, you know, over a course of 10 years, the building is going to change. It always does. Something happens. They add more square footage, they add more equipment, whatever. And as a result, you have to, add these adjustments to your baseline. And well, wait, where's the uncertainty with that? I've never seen anyone talk about uncertainty with the non-routine adjustments. And so if you're doing uncertainty, you know, for an option C project, and then it's a 10-year project, and then you have these, these non-routine adjustments, it's like all your uncertainty is worthless because you've just thrown on this huge number of uncertainty that you're not even gonna try to quantify it just doesn't make any sense. So anyway, that's that's my thinking. Now, in the in the utility world, I think there's value for uncertainty. I know there's value for uncertainty, and that's why they do it. I think the bankers they need to know that kind of thing, um, and probably this you know government bodies that are you know dealing with you know two billion dollars, they probably want to know that as well, but not in the ESCO world. So, you talked a lot about you know, the value of uncertainty in utilities and how it may be questionable for ESCOs, but how do you help clients understand MMV and what are some of those best practices to help clients understand that? <clears throat> so uh, in order to explain MNV uh, to the clients and to, uh, you know, facilitate the MNV in, uh, in energy efficiency projects, uh, like I said previously, uh, what we need to explain to clients is what we are doing and why we are doing it and how we will do it eventually. Uh, this is a basic explanation explanation that I can give to clients uh, as to how um, you know MNV can be incorporated into in the energy efficiency projects. But uh, for a for a for an audience which is uh, more technical and is looking into you know more detailed concepts of how how it can be uh, you know. Uh, how it can be done. So what we can do to uh, uh, effectively explain the MNV to clients is that we need to define the terminologies uh, revolving around uh, MNV. We need to explain, uh, we need to have a standardized uh, you know, terminology and uh, method to evaluate MNV for projects. Uh, we need to we need to visualize uh, the process of how MNV will be uh, used in uh, in energy efficiency projects. Uh, 
uh, we can give them real world examples of uh, previously implemented projects which were help which were facilitated by certain mnv protocols and uh, how savings were met uh, for those projects um i could add on few other things uh uh Reso providing resources uh, to help uh, understand, uh, to help uh, clients understand MNV is also important. I want to um, tell a story for mine. Um, when I first started uh, in the business, it was 1995, and I worked for Johnson Controls. I just got out of uh, grad school, so I was this geeky, smart kid who had no social skills. Um, and was totally terrified of anyone wearing a, a tie. I was totally intimidated by anyone with a tie on. And um, I had come up with the savings. We used uh, some kind of option C type um, method at Johnson, and it was for a small uh, regional hospital. And so I went to this hospital and I had to present in front of the board of directors. I'd never done that before. And there, of course, all these people with ties and the women were wearing nice dresses. And, and I, and I wanted to make sure that, you know, everything I said was unassailable. Everything was perfect. So I explained the method. I explained how you regress weather to use utility bills to weather so you can weather normalize, why you weather normalize. Here's the algebra involved. And finally, here are the savings. And I thought I did a really good job. Um, I, I love speaking and have for a long time. And um I, you know, left the room and I had a guy who's, he was kind of like my contact there. And he came out after me, um, like a few minutes afterwards. And I said, well, how'd I do? And he said to me, the first thing he said was, well, they don't want you ever to come back again. And I said, why? And he said, you made them feel stupid. And these were really smart people. They were lawyers and business people who were successful. I mean, they were smart people, but, you know, they maybe weren't really well versed in algebra. And, and so that was, that was a little difficult, but then, you know, later I had to now present my M and V results to him. So maybe three months later, I came back and uh, we met in a Chinese restaurant and I put it all on one piece of paper. It's all in one piece. And the, the main thing I wrote was savings equals baseline minus actual. Actual is the actual bills. Baseline is how much energy you would have used, you know, given today's weather and, and the number of days in the bill. And he was like, no, 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 no. No, that doesn't make any sense. You've got to make it more straightforward. And I asked, well, what? what? I, I don't understand. And he said, no, it's not savings equals baseline minus actual. It's baseline minus actual equals savings. That's what he wanted. And, and it took me a while to figure it out. That was the math we learned in first and second grade. Okay, when we got to fifth grade, then we can, we, could, we can move things around. Instead of A plus B equals C, we could say C equals A plus B. And that's where my client was. That is the problem with explaining M and V. You've got to keep it simple. That is the problem. So how do you best, you know, help clients understand it? Well, I guess you have to know the client, you know, and you, you start simple. If they start asking difficult questions, then you go hard. I mean, that's it. You have all the stuff with you um, when you go to present savings, but you hope, or you don't hope, but you assume that they're not going to ask more difficult questions like, well, how did you get baseline? Oh, 
here, I'll show you. But otherwise you just say, here's baseline, how much you would have used, here's actual, how much you did use, here's your savings. And if they ask more, then you show them more. If they ask more, you show them more, right? Yeah, you have to know your audience. I think that's the best practice. Okay, guys, we have one more question and um, it's a pretty big one. So um, right now, obviously we have a lot of countries around the world dedicating to be net zero by 2050. So how can we get more companies and countries to adopt MNV best practices to help create more energy efficiency projects that help us meet that goal? Okay, uh, that is a tricky question, but I'll try to explain uh, in the best possible way as far as I can understand. So uh, to help, uh, to encourage more companies or countries to adopt MNV practices, which are best MNV practices, uh, and to further contribute to global goals of, uh, you know, the net zero reduction of by 2050, what, what can be done is, first of all, uh, when I look at it from a country's perspective, the government needs to uh, do the policy advocacy for implementation of MNV best practices uh, within the country. Uh, so they need to adopt uh, certain MNV protocols and then those, those, those needs to be followed uh, throughout uh, in the country for any uh, energy efficiency projects or programs. Uh, next, what, what could be done is that we can, uh, what we can done is we can in, in, incentivize the adoption of any uh, best, best MNV best practices. Uh, what government can do is provide the financial incentives, grants, or tax breaks for energy efficiency projects, which include robust MNV plans and uh, recognition certificate programs recognized by international institutes like AWE. Those uh, give a give a extra boost to you know implementing um, MNV best practices. Uh, another part could be. Uh, uh, awareness can be uh, raised uh, regarding the importance of MNV or a certain uh, procedure in MNV to achieve the energy efficiency and climate goals. Uh, companies, policymakers, stakeholders can be educated uh, for, regarding the benefits of accurate measurement and verifications, uh, which might include uh, uh, identification of cost-effective energy saving opportunities, uh, transparency in uh, MNV, MNV uh, protocols or the MNV uh, method that has been laid out, uh, which will uh, further uh, enable informed decision-making uh, within country as well as within a company. And last thing I want to add on to that is uh, the success stories of implementation of uh, uh, implementation of MNV best practices can also be shared within companies and countries so that, uh, you know, it can be showcased uh, so that it can be implemented as either a pilot project or whatever is, you know, whatever works. So I would, I would, yeah, that would be my point of view regarding this question. Anything to add on, Mr. John here? Because that would be all from my end. Yeah, it's a tough question. And I'm not, I don't know how to think this way. Um, it's just, I'm more of a practitioner and not one of these folks that, that influences policy. I just don't know how to think that way. The only thing I could say is, you know, influencing companies that I can do, not countries. Uh, and it, and I, you know, there's, 
there's three reasons that companies, maybe three, they, that they get energy audits. One is they want to save money so that they're more profitable or maybe so they are profitable. Um, that would be one. Another one is they want to reduce their emissions because they have these internal uh, greenhouse gas emissions goals. So they want to reduce their energy usage. And the third one, actually, I'm not even sure. Maybe that's those are the two main ones. Um, and so, I, you know, they may do these energy projects and there are um, there are these fake uh, energy uh, conservation measures out there that will um, not do anything. They won't save any energy and, and companies get sold on these things all the time. And so M&V, you know, could be useful if, you know, so that they can ensure that they actually, well, no, they can't ensure that they're not going to be taken because they probably will have installed something that didn't work. And then they do M&V and find out it didn't work. But hopefully they only installed it on one one factory or one building and then found out it didn't work before they go and install on all the others. So, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I just think that the best way to at least influence companies is to explain, look, you start slow. You dip your feet in the water. You don't jump in the pool. You try it on one building. You see if it works. That's called M and V, and if it works, then go ahead and do the other buildings. I I think that's it. Um, but otherwise, no, I do I haven't. I think the um, the the countries that signed on to be net zero, if they're serious about it, then they will take care of it. If they're not serious about it, then they won't take care of it. There's really nothing anyone like me can do about that. Thank you both for offering your perspectives today and um, helping us understand M and V a little bit better. This has been Full of Energy, an AE podcast. We'll see you next time.